Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hello, everyone. This is Rena. And this episode is for the women, for the ladies, because we're going to talk about menopause today and perimenopause and all those myths and how to get rid of those awful symptoms like weight gain and hot flashes and anxiety and brain fog and fatigue and hair loss and depression. But you know what? Those are the least of your issues, ladies. The bigger issue is all those hidden issues of menopause the big impact on things like Alzheimer's and heart disease and breast cancer, all that stuff that really no one tells us anything about. And of course, we're going to talk about myths around hormone therapy. Someone says it's good. Someone says it's bad. Someone says it gives you breast cancer. Well, we're going to talk to the renowned leading expert on menopause, on women's health, so he can help answer the question on what is the truth around hormone replacement therapy. And finally, we're going to give you a plan going forward to not only beat those pesky symptoms, but to also make sure that you live a very long, healthy, happy life without all those health problems like osteoporosis. And who do we have as our renowned guest today? It's Dr. Mesh Seibel. He is an international expert, one of the most entertaining, fun, informative influential speakers on women's wellness and menopause. In fact, he's a 20-year veteran of Harvard Medical School, winner of multiple patient education awards, has had great appearances on NPR, PBS, People Magazine. He has taken care of tens of thousands of women as they journey in through menopause. And what's exciting is that his brand new best-selling book, The Estrogen Fix, just came out. So we're going to try to get him to give us all great insights from that book. It's a breakthrough guide to bringing healthy, energized, and hormonally balanced through perimenopause, menopause, and beyond. He's also got a menopause quiz, which you are all going to get a chance to take for free, is the editor of the Hot Years magazine, and can be found on drmesh.com. Dr. Mesh, welcome. What a pleasure. Well, Rena, thank you for that introduction. It's very wonderful to be here with you, and I'm excited to share some information. So let's start with the most important question first. What the heck is perimenopause? I hadn't heard about it for the longest time. What's menopause? And at what age do these wonderful things begin? Well, menopause is a definition of one year after your last menstrual period. That's the medical definition. And if it's Surgical menopause, if you're a woman who is menstruating and still in her reproductive years and your ovaries are taken out, even if your uterus is still left in, well, that's menopause. Now, perimenopause is like perimeter. Peri means around. So peri is the window of years around menopause, and it can be anywhere up to a 10-year window. For women, it's commonly three to six years for most women, but for many women, it's up to 10 years. So perimenopause is that window of time 
around menopause. And it's when the hormones start to become unbalanced and the symptoms begin to make you feel like you're unbalanced. Mm. You know, it's so interesting because we always think of menopause as a moment in time. And what you're saying is it's not. It's a journey and it's a slow, steady journey. And that's why I think a lot of us miss those symptoms. Yes, it's an age. It's not a, it's a, it's a transition. It's not an age. There's no one age of menopause. Now, why do we have these insane amount of symptoms? And I know not every woman has the same symptoms, but we know that 75% of women going through menopause will have hot flashes. We know hot flashes will kill everything from sleep to libido to your mood. They're awful. And 75% is a huge number of women going through the same exact symptom. So right. tell our listeners, why are we going, why do women go through these enormous symptoms? What is going on in the body? Well, first realize that in 1900, which is not that long ago, the average woman was living to be 48 years old. And the mean age of menopause is 51. So menopause is really a phenomenon of our more recent history because women are living longer. Men and women are living longer. And in fact, women are going to live a third of their life or more beyond menopause. And when you think back to your youth and the time that you were going through puberty, you remember that it was a crazy time. Your hormones were raging. Your mood was up and down. Your body was changing. You were starting to have sexy thoughts. So many things were going on. And that's because your hormones, predominantly estrogen and progesterone, were going from very, very almost unmeasurable levels through a window of imbalance over a number of years until finally you got through puberty, and on the other side, you became a reproductively uh, competent woman. In other words, you may have been a young lady, but your body was hormonally balanced, and you were in a position to have children. And so every month, you had a menstrual period with very paired and cycling hormonal balance. And then you flash forward 35 years or so, 30 years, and you hit this window of perimenopause when the same thing starts happening backwards. And in that window of time, the hormones go from paired to unpaired. And that leads to a series of symptoms, again, affecting your mood and your skin and your intestines and your libido and your sleep and your sexy thoughts, and all of that is happening, kind of unraveling almost, mm. because of hormonal imbalance until finally the hormones drift into, once again, those low levels that they were at pre-puberty. And so it's all related to hormonal imbalance. Now, you talk about three types of menopause. What are the three types of menopause? Well, there's the natural menopause that happens, which is the, the age 51 as a mean, where women continue to cycle and then eventually the ovaries stop producing eggs. The eggs either become resistant if there's some left and stop working, or they are depleted and there's no more eggs in the ovary. 
And I will just say that the mean age of menopause, this natural menopause, is age 51. The range is about 46 to 55. But some women will go into menopause as late as 60. And, and 5 to 10% of women will go into menopause before age 45. And 1% will go into menopause before age 40. And one in a thousand will go into menopause before age 30. So that's why I'm saying menopause mm. isn't about an age. It's about a transition. And the symptoms can start up to 10 years before that. Then there's surgical menopause, which I alluded to earlier, which simply means that for either disease conditions such as cancer or maybe you have a bad uh, condition of endometriosis where the lining of the uterus invades the ovaries and causes internal bleeding and pain. The ovaries may be removed for that. Or maybe you're one of a growing number of women who become aware that she has a genetic condition such as the BRCA or the breast cancer gene and the ovaries are removed preventively so that you lower your risk of breast or ovarian cancer. So in any of those conditions, that's surgical menopause because once the ovaries come out, the, the estrogen levels abruptly stop. Mm -hmm. And there, there's no really perimenopause. It's just one day you're a healthy, hormonally healthy woman, and the next day, boom, you mm -hmm. are suddenly at a baseline of hormones. So that's a rapid, drastic drop. And then there is a third kind, which comes as a result of either treatments, you know, it's called iatrogenic, or in other words, something happens medically. So perhaps you had uh, a condition or where you needed chemotherapy, and or you had exposure to some toxin. Uh, so all of a sudden, your ovaries over time, months or maybe up to a year or so, would be exposed to some uh, external pro uh, source of a substance that could lead to the ovary stop working, and you go into menopause that way. But all of these ways do happen. Mm -hmm. But of course, the most common is natural menopause. Got it. Let's talk about perimenopause. The word menopause is very well known. You know, most women are aware of what it is. But perimenopause is not something that most women truly understand or are even aware of. And as you know, one of my goals with this podcast is to create awareness so at least women are knowledgeable that, hey, maybe if I'm 38 and my digestion's misbehaving, I don't have a gut issue, I have an estrogen issue. Or if my suddenly all my weight's coming around my my belly, you know, hey, it's it's not that something's gone wrong with my thyroid, maybe it's my estrogen level that's dropping. Help us understand perimenopause with respect to how does a woman figure that out? Is there a test that I can do? Is there a number I'm looking for? So I can say, hey, if I'm having these five, six different symptoms where I don't sleep as well, I'm getting a little moodier, then now I go and get myself tested. And sure enough, it shows I'm in perimenopause, or is there some other way we can figure that out? Well, you've really raised, you know, uh, some very important points here. And so let me just back up one second and just say, 
in perimenopause, probably the most common symptom that you hear, or the most common thing you hear is, I just don't feel right. This just what's happening to my body? What's happening to my mind? Those kind of broad strokes. And I think it is important that if you feel that you aren't the way you think is normal for you, it's important to seek out medical help and make sure why that is. And I will tell you that there, at the time of perimenopause is a time when many women will experience maybe a gut issue. It is a time when they may experience a low thyroid in particular. The symptoms are overlapping, and I'm going to talk about the symptoms. And also, it may be a time when diabetes is coming into play, mm -hmm. an increasingly common problem. All of those things may cause frequent urination or foggy thinking or a little bit of anxiety or just not sleeping well. Those are all symptoms that go along with all of those conditions potentially. The difference is not everybody gets those other conditions and everybody that lives long enough is going into menopause. Mm -hmm. So you might notice skin conditions like acne or a little bit of coarse hair coming out on your face or commonly emotionally people experience anxiety or a little bit of sadness. And those are common, common conditions. More than half, maybe 60% experience some element of that. And then, of course, a subset of people will experience real depression. If you're a woman who had a history of postpartum depression or really bad PMS or a history of clinical depression in uh, an earlier age, then you're more at risk for depression. But you could feel bloating or breast tenderness or crying spells or decreased libido or changes in your remembering forgetfulness. You know, I was talking to a lady the other day, and she was talking about her husband told her when on the way home from work when she was going to pick up the kids to get some dog food because they needed dog food. And so she got home, and she walks in, I'm home. And he says, did you get the dog food? And she said, oh, man, not only did I forget the dog food, I forgot to pick up the kids. Oh, so, no. So it's like it happens. Often frequent urination, which again can be a sign of diabetes, but it also can be a sign of sensitive bladder due to changes in estrogen, mm -hmm. hair loss or hair thinning, mm -hmm. headaches, hot flashes we talked about. So all of these things are possible. The good news is most women don't get all of them. They get some of them. And if you notice that you're having changes in your libido or changes in any of these other things. In other words, you don't feel like you. You don't feel quite right. Then it's time to go talk to your healthcare provider. And as for a test, the simplest test to get is a blood test called FSH or follicle stimulating hormone. And that's a pituitary protein hormone that stimulates the ovary to produce an egg each month. And when the ovary runs out of eggs or the eggs get more resistant, the FSH has to shout louder to the ovary so the levels go up higher and higher trying to get the ovary to respond. So a higher level FSH is a good indicator that your ovaries are transitioning into their new position, which is perimenopause. This is such critical information. You are so right in that a lot of women 
start to feel different. They don't feel as good as they felt all their life. And so what they do is they start, they go to their primary care. I mean, I'm speaking literally from experience of having talked to so many women. I'm post-menopause. I've gone through this myself where I would go and say, I don't feel right. Something's not right. I'm going to the bathroom more. I'm not sleeping as well. I just don't feel right. They would do the test and they'd say, there's nothing wrong with you. Go home. Oh, we think you're depressed. Take an antidepressant. Or, oh, you must have gut issues. Go see a GI. So what happens is today, because we haven't yet connected the dots that it could be perimenopause, we start to see specialists, a gut specialist or an endocrinologist like, oh, you may have diabetes. Oh, let's get your thyroid out. It's so important for people listening to this, for women listening to this podcast to realize that when you don't feel good, if your friends are saying they don't feel good, get the FSH test done, right? Before you spend time with 20 specialists. See if this is the issue. And if this is the issue, then keep listening because we're going to hopefully have Dr. Mesh give us some recommendations on how to treat ourselves and not live with these very debilitating symptoms. Right. And let me say, Rena, that what happens a lot of times is maybe you're 35. And, you know, I said 5 to 10 percent of women go into menopause before 45 and the symptoms start up to 10 years sooner. So maybe you're a 35-year-old woman or you're 36 or 37. And, you know, you've just had a kid a year ago or two. Or, you know, you've got one kid and you've been waiting because of work and waiting for a promotion or something. And you want to have that second kid. So you've been thinking about getting pregnant. And all of a sudden, you just don't feel right. And the last thing you might have on your mind is I'm heading in towards menopause because, my goodness, you're thinking about having babies. You're not like an old lady who's going to have these symptoms. But menopause is not about age. It's about transition. I keep saying that Mm -hmm. because so many people have in their mind an older woman, and it's not necessarily so. And it's only if you're proactive and can understand it that you can start being – making steps towards having a healthy lifespan beyond this point and optimizing your health and your wellness and your vitality. So true. And, you know, I have to say this at this point, I don't like the word menopause. It's, it, it means stopping of menses. And that's like, to your point, it's a long-term change. It's not something that's a moment in time. I don't even like the word change. I've, crafted the word bloom. I think it's all about bloom. We're blooming. We're becoming the best version of ourselves. And it's not an overnight process. It's something that takes time. And so I refer to it as you're in bloom, you're changing, you're growing. But now the question is, what are the long-term effects of this bloom? So Dr. Mesh, as I understand hair loss and anxiety are the least of the problems. There are bigger issues that women have to worry about because to your point, we're living longer now. We're not dying at 55 or 60, which means we have to worry if we have dementia or Alzheimer's or heart attacks. Tell us a little bit about what are the deep, long-lasting impact of menopause if we don't handle it correctly. Well, first of all, The point you're making here is a critical one for women because I think that there are two kinds of symptoms. There are the noisy ones, I call them, and those are the ones like the hot flashes or sensitive bladder or vaginal dryness. These are things that get your attention. 
But then there are the silent conditions, like changes in your blood vessels, which can lead to heart disease or increase the risk for dementia. Changes in your bones that can lead to osteoporosis or thinning of the bones. And one of the things that people don't realize, for instance, if we're talking about the blood vessels and hot, and hot flashes, this is something that a lot of people don't ponder. And that is when you think of hot flashes, what do you think about? I mean, you know, oh, this is like inconvenient. This is embarrassing. This is like uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You're not thinking, you know, that it could be an indicator that something bad is happening in your body. So true. Now, what, do I, what do I mean by that? Well, here's what happens. What is going on with a hot flash? What's happening is the blood vessels in your body are narrowing and they are causing uh, a shift of the blood flow. And then all of a sudden there's a release and the blood vessels will then dilate and then you have this heat and this hot, uh, the hot flash and the, and the blood vessels will show your face will be red and your neck and chest will be red and so forth. But if you're having really frequent hot flashes and intense hot flashes, it also can be an indicator of a problem going on with your heart because the narrowness of the vessels are also happening in your heart. So sometimes people will have a chest pain mm-hmm. or some people will have mood swings with these uh, with these hot flashes. Now, the good news is, is that some people's chest pain is a result of this kind of this temporary ischemia or lack of blood flow from the hot flashes. And when they go on hormones, it actually makes that go away. But if they're constantly going and there's actually pain and so forth, frequent severe hot flashes can actually be an indicator that there is narrowing of the arteries around the heart. So it can be an indicator. So hot flashes can mean that. It's kind of like a a, uh, lack of blood flow that comes with these hot flashes. So this is important to understand. But what happens as a result of lower estrogen after you go into perimenopause is that there's a series of, there's a lining, a one layer cell lining of the blood vessels called the endothelial cells. And these protect the lining of the blood vessels throughout the body from your toes to your head. And what happens is, is that as estrogen gets lower, the ability of damage to those endothelial cells goes up and there is an increased risk of plaque forming and narrowing of the blood vessels. In the brain, what happens as a lack of estrogen happens is that we don't realize that a lot of our thinking and motor activity is based on estrogen working as a lubricant for the brain. What happens is estrogen is important because the brain needs about 15% of all the blood flow that comes out of your heart. And without, if there's narrowing of the blood vessels in the brain and so forth, they don't have any other source of energy. There's no fat stores or other stuff they can pull it from. Mm. So the vessels are important. The estrogen actually allows the synapses in the brain to work faster. So what does that mean? 
one the you know the if you've ever unwrapped a baseball or you see all those strings it's just a bunch of strings and everything the brain is just a bunch of little bitty nerves trillions of these mm-hmm. nerves one connecting to another and and things happen by one nerve communicating with the next nerve it's kind of a hey here's the secret pass it down and they can do it really fast estrogen speeds up that process so if you are walking and you slip on the curb and you're going to fall if when you're younger part of the reason that it happens that you can gain your balance has to do with estrogen moving those nerve stimulus faster estrogen also makes this the uh, serotonin higher in your brain so that it's a better feel and it influences mood uh, estrogen also has an impact on um the entire blood flow to the brain, giving it more oxygen and making it more efficient in terms of thinking. So it plays a big role in the brain. In your bones, estrogen is responsible for keeping more of the cells that put bone in or calcium in your bones and keeping a balance between the cells that are taking calcium out. Because People think of the bones as like Halloween and they're kind of dead and inert. But in fact, the bones are very living and they're mm-hmm. always getting. If you ever look at the sheetrock on your walls, you might see those little cracks that mm-hmm. happen sometimes. Well, the bones get those little micro cracks, too. And what happens is these little uh, cells go in and kind of Pac-Man it out. They just go in and munch out the crack. And then the other cells, the osteoblasts, will put calcium back in and kind of patch it up. So the osteoclasts take it out, the osteoblasts put it in. And what happens is when estrogen goes down, there's more osteoclasts taking it out than osteoblasts putting it in. Mm. And so there's loss of bone. And a 50-year-old healthy woman has the same risk of dying of a complication of osteoporosis as she does of breast cancer. So it's very important to realize that these silent conditions that you don't know are going awry until mm. they hit a tipping point are completely unknown to you. So it's important for women to get bone densities, to know where their bones are. It's important for women to have cardiac evaluations around 50 and beyond to see where they are. And, you know, you want to keep your brain active as you can and Eat properly, exercise properly, and hormones, if they're appropriate, to optimize your brain function. So those silent conditions are happening, and you can do things to prevent it. So there's hope for all of us yet. We're not no, all going to. No, there's more than hope. There's actually things you can absolutely do to prevent this or minimize it. Let's absolutely. talk about that. And you you talk about the fact that, Timing is very important, that there's a specific window of time when right. you must act. So let's start with what is that window of time? And then tell us, we're waiting for you to share all your great wisdom and insights from years of experience of what do you recommend? Well, in 2002, a paper came out called the Women's Health Initiative, or the WHI. And many of you may have heard of this paper because it was the first in a series of WHI papers. And in that paper, 
it's suggested incorrectly, I'm going to tell you, that women who take hormone therapy were at increased risk for breast cancer, heart disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. But here's how that paper was done that made the outcome, the results, incorrect and totally inaccurate. And I explain this in my book, The Estrogen Fix, because this is the beginning of opening up clarity. The study that was done used a hormone combination of, of oral pills that included Premarin, a type of estrogen, plus Provera, a type of synthetic progesterone, and it was called PremPro. And some of the women got PremPro, and some of the women got a placebo. Now, it turned out the reason that the women who got the hormones did more poorly is because of this. Although the age range of the women in this study was age 50 to 79, in other words, in both groups, the women were age 50 to 79. In the hormone group, 75% of the women were age 60 to 79. And in the placebo group, 75% of the women were 50 to 59. So we were comparing 50 to 59-year-old healthy women on a placebo with 60 to 79-year-old women on a hormone. Now, you would just think commonsensically that a 60 to 79-year-old woman is more likely to have breast cancer, heart disease, dementia than a 50 to 59-year-old healthy woman. And that's a true fact. Mm -hmm. But then to add to it, it was supposed to be only well women in this study. But there were so many women already on hormones at the time that the women who were in the hormone group, the 60 to 79 year old, uh, mostly 60 to 79 year old group also included many smokers, women who were overweight, women who had high blood pressure and women who had diabetes. And all of these things are risk factors for heart disease and some for breast cancer, etc. So it was an unfair study. And what has happened is in 2013, they did a redo of the same patients, and this time they took all the overlap that they could, and they just looked at the women who were the same age. And the women who were 50 to 59, in fact, did not have uh, an increased risk of almost any of those things. I say almost because there was a slight, a very minimal increased risk of breast cancer was one per thousand and the risk was equivalent to the risk of women who have uh, fibrocystic breasts in other words very dense breasts or women who are quite overweight they also have an increased risk of breast cancer or women who drink one to two glasses of wine a week they also have a very slight increased risk so if you look at that slight risk aside, almost all the other things went away. And it turns out that in, a, in just a month ago, another study came out with these same patients, again, lined up for age, and now following them for 12 years after the study. And 
almost everything went away except this one small uh, increased risk of breast cancer, as I mentioned, at the level of uh, one per thousand additional cases. However, women who took only estrogen, in other words, women who had had a hysterectomy, actually had a reduction in breast cancer, a 23% reduction in breast cancer, and a 32% reduction in heart disease. So we're Mm. talking about a timing issue and a medication issue. And now we know that we can swap out that synthetic progestin, the Provera, for other bioidentical progesterones and lower the risk even further. So there's a lot to do with which medicine you use and when you take it. And the best time to take hormones, as I explained in the estrogen fix, is to take it closest to the time of menopause beginning, to start the estrogen when menopause starts, and then evaluate it at five and at 10 years. And for some women, they can continue taking it that long, and for some can can continue taking it even longer. That is such an important myth that you've just busted. And you know what breaks my heart is that how did such a poorly designed and poorly executed study get so much media visibility? You know, how did that become the norm of what we understand about hormone replacement therapy? I've heard from different gynecologists and different doctors that there were also issues in the kinds of, of hormones that were used. So that's my next question. Is there a difference in the, they called it the horse pee um, estrogen versus the new bioidenticals that seem to be more in favor? So help us understand what are the different kinds of hormone replacement therapy and which is the one that is least risky and what do you typically recommend? I want to just finish one thought on what we were talking about, and I'm going to hop immediately on to what you just asked. Sure. And that is part of what perpetuates this is that as a result of that study in 2002, 80, 80, 80% fewer women are on hormones today than in 2002. And as a result, the doctors in training have 80% fewer patients in menopause and 80% fewer women they prescribe hormones to. So their experience is down. And that's part of the problem is that many of the doctors have read the same papers as you've read, haven't gotten the updates. It's like I know that information already. One of the reasons that I'm at Beth Israel and Harvard Medical Schools teaching the residents and the interns and the fellows what to do with these hormones because they are not sure and it's really imperative to get people when they're learning so that they have this formative information. Exactly. Now, in terms of the choices of hormones, there's several, there, there's, there's dozens of options of hormones. So I'm going to try and break it down easily as I can because this is, chapters of the estrogen fix where I explain all this stuff. But in simplest terms, there's basically two kinds of uh, hormones. There's the bioidentical, and then there are the conjugated. Technically, there's also synthetic ones too, but I'm just going to keep it at, uh, let's just say bioidenticals and then other ones. Let's do it like that. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, and then they can be compound, they can be purchased at two places, either at regular drug stores or at compounding pharmacies. So I want to address these two points. The first is bioidentical versus um, the other ones, whatever the, whatever we want to call them. The first is the bioidentical means that they are identical in physical structure and chemical structure. If you remember your chemistry from high school, those steroid hormones had all that chicken wire looking chemistry. Mm -hmm. And the chicken wire in what your body makes and bioidentical are the same. So they're biologically identical in structure. Now, they are synthetic themselves because they are made in plants. As I say, the only plant that can make a hormone is the chemical plant. There are no bodies nowhere that can synthesize a plant precursor into a usable endpoint hormone. I, we don't have the enzymes, and plants, therefore, have to go through a process. So they're bioidentical but not natural. The second thing is is that the bioidenticals can be put on uh, your skin. Mm -hmm. They put on your skin as a patch. They can be put on your skin as a spray, as a gel. They can be put into the vagina as a ring. They can be also put in the vagina or the skin as a cream. So there are a lot of ways to take the bioidenticals and the um, – and so there's a lot of forms. The other kinds of hormones uh, are typically uh, pills and creams. And so there is one patch that's made with that as well. But primarily it breaks up like that. So there's a lot of ways to take them. And I hope I'm not confusing anybody. But basically there's a lot of ways to take hormones. Now, the second point is that... What's the difference between compounding pharmacies and a traditional drugstore? Mm -hmm. A lot of people do not realize that the same bioidentical hormones that they purchase in a compounding pharmacy are also available in the regular drugstores. In other words, it's the same hormone, exactly the same hormone. It's been probably made in the same laboratory. The difference is, is that in the regular drugstores, in the you know, the CVS, the Rite Aid, the Walgreens, the uh, Wayne Reed, whatever one it is, all of those have FDA-approved hormones where every batch is the same. Whereas in the bioidentical world of compounding pharmacies, they tend to be made as one-ofs. So a lot of times what happens is what you get in the in the prescription that's filled is not the same as what the doctor ordered. And the reason that I am confident to say this, and I'm telling you this study so that you realize it's just not my opinion, is that in one study done where 12 pre prescriptions, the same prescription was sent to 12 co uh, compounding pharmacies around the country, and then the filled prescription was then mailed to a chemical analysis lab that does hormone analysis, in that particular analysis, none of the hormones were the same from any prescription. In other words, every one of them was different from each other. And in general, 
the estrogen tended to be 60 to 200 percent higher than what was ordered, and the progesterone tended to be 60 to 80 percent lower than what was ordered. That is frightening. That's a huge difference. It is a huge difference. And has the, huge implications, I'm assuming. It does, because we are now seeing the first reports coming out of uterine cancer from women who have taken bioidentical hormones from compounding pharmacies. There's several reported cases. And the, before I scare anybody too much, let me say that... Too late. I'm already scared, but continue. <laughs> The transition from a normal uterine lining to cancer is probably a five-year to ten-year transition. So if you are a person who insists that you want to have your hormones from a compounding pharmacy, that's fine. But be sure that you are having your healthcare provider check your uterine lining so that these can be, these changes can be caught as their early changes and can be reversed hormonally. They don't require even surgery to reverse them if you catch them early enough. So you just have to be proactive to check your uterine lining because this stuff happens across the country all the time. And How do you check your uterine lining? Okay, that's a good question. The way you do that is one of two ways. You go to your healthcare provider and either they will do a vaginal ultrasound, they'll put a probe into the vaginal canal and look to see the thickness of the lining of the uterus. And it normally should be four millimeters or less in thickness. And when it starts to get to be much more than that, then you have to do the second way you can check that, which is by doing a, an endometrial biopsy or putting a little bitty instrument into the uterus the size of a very thin straw and scraping out some of the cells to look at this tissue under a microscope and make sure it's not abnormal. Some occasionally will actually go in the uterus with a small telescope called a hysteroscope, hystero meaning uterus and scope means, you know, to look in. And it's very thin. It's about four millimeters in diameter. And it goes into the uterus, and then you can look inside, but you still end up having to scrape the cells and mm -hmm. check. So it's easy to do as an office visit thing, but it should be checked every year or two at the absolute most and make sure you're not missing something. This is such incredible advice. What kind of hormones do you like, by the way? I've been told by various functional medicine and naturopath doctors that ingesting hormones impacts the gut and obliterates some of the good microbiome. And so typically I've heard it's better to do either a vaginal insertion or a lotion or a cream or a patch. What is the truth around that? Which is the best form in which to take that hormone? Well, it's interesting you mentioned about the you know, estrogen's impact on the gut. In fact, it's also true that the gut impacts the hormones. And what do I mean by that? I mean that people who have a bad GI tract bacteria, people whose intestinal tract has been fed too much sugar or too much fast foods or processed foods or other kinds of foods that are not ideally 
healthy for you actually have changed the bacteria in their intestines. Mm. And those bacteria can't digest estrogen as well. So what ends up happening is the worse your gut, the higher your estrogen. And I actually believe that some of the problems with estrogen has been they've been given to people who have bad GI gut and I think bacteria. And I think that it's been caused internally. So for that reason, uh, the healthier your diet and healthier your biome, your microbiome and your intestine, that three pounds of bacteria that lives in your intestines, the healthier that is, the more you're going to digest the estrogen, keep the actual levels lower in your bloodstream. And that's a kind of an interesting little opposite to what the person was saying, not contradicting it, but adding to it. Uh, in terms of your point, though, it's been shown that the best way to take it in terms of risk is probably on the skin. So probably transdermal or or vaginal, uh, transdermal meaning through the skin or vaginally by putting a uh, some form of estrogen into the vagina probably is less risk for blood clots or stroke. And the reason is by avoiding the intestinal tract, it doesn't go through the liver to increase clotting enzymes that can increase the risk of blood clots and so forth. So the oral way, if you're going to use oral, some of the data suggests that if you go with the lower dose oral, mm -hmm. you actually can prevent a lot of the downside of taking it orally. In other words, you can use it on your skin in most dosages without increasing that risk. But if you're going to use it orally, it's safest at the lower dosages. Oh, interesting. So hormones is one option. What are your thoughts on alternative or natural remedies for menopause and perimenopause symptoms? What have you seen work? Well, first of all, it's important to realize that if you take hormones and expect your life to be perfect, you'll be disappointed because hormones are only one keystone of the options for healthy menopausal transition and life beyond 35 or 40. It's, it's uh, or whatever age you begin need to begin them. And so by that, I mean, if you're going to take estrogen or not take estrogen, a healthy lifestyle is essential. It's just part of what's required. And by that, I'm talking about four things that I think it's like if it was a car, it'd be four tires. Mm. It would be the sleep. It would be your exercise. It would be your nutrition and it would be your stress levels. And if you people have the idea that if they just fix one of those things, like if I could just lower my stress, my life will be perfect. I can keep eating, <laughs> I can keep eating, you know, fast foods and I can keep drinking sodas and I can sit on my behind and not do any exercise and I don't need sleep. I, don't, I can work on four hours or five hours and still be fine. Well, if you do that, what's going to happen is you're going to be uh, disappointed because you have to work on all of these things. If if you had four flat tires and you fixed one, you wouldn't be going anywhere. Mm -hmm. If you had, if you had 
of four tires and you just improved each of them and put a little air in each of them, at least you could keep going forward and mm -hmm. until you could improve all of those areas. So I think it's really important to realize lifestyle goes with it. But in terms of other things, then, what else can you do? Well, first of all, I mean, in lifestyle, including drinking a lot of water, is one of the first things that I would do if I wanted to help somebody uh, improve the quality of their life. You have to improve the some of you and not just some of you. This is really important conceptually because if you don't look at yourself as a unit, as an entity, and neglect portions of your life, then you'll end up being suboptimally benefited from whatever you do. But then you can go from lifestyle and hydration. Then there are things that you can do that are, for instance, uh, alternative medication things. And by that I mean a lot of the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy approaches, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And these are sort of hypnosis type of things or mind-body approaches. And they have been studied and are very effective for hot flashes uh, specifically or for sleep. They're particularly good. And those are approaches that can be used. Then you can go into the over-the-counter treatments, of which there are so many. Mm -hmm. Black coash, chaseberry, don quai, estrogen, evening primrose, flax seeds, eyecool, red clover, soy. I mean, there's dozens of them. If you go in a drugstore, you just get confused walking down the aisle with your options. The thing that I like to say is that all of them work for some people and none of them work for everyone. And so I give people guidelines for taking supplements. Mm -hmm. The first is to try one thing at a time because if you don't know if it works or not, uh, for sure, then you're confused at the end of the time. So at the end of three months, and I would give it three months because these are not pharmacologic doses. These are small doses. So try one thing for three months. If it doesn't work, throw it away and get the next one because adding another one will confuse you. If you if it gets better, was it one, the new one, or was it the combination? And then by the time you end up with three or four of these things, your bill for the month is going to be hundreds of dollars, mm -hmm. just supplements of which you maybe only needed one. I've had a lot of experience with all of these. I, I like soy in particular as a food, and there are some supplements, but soy has been used for a long time, and it can be quite effective. The most the essential ingredient is, in it is the genistein, G-E-N-I-S-T-E-I-N, mm -hmm. and that seems to be the most effective, but all of these can be helpful. Um, and then there's other kinds of things that you can do as well. Because I have to pause you there and say, yep. God, I wish all you doctors would get together and just agree on a single story. Because there's a lot of negative information on soy out there, right? They yes. say, well, especially if you've got concerns around breast cancer, take all soy products out of it. Is that a myth? What What's the truth on that? I have interviewed, because I'm the editor of Hot Years Magazine, and I have interviewed the top soy people in the world. I did I interviewed Kenneth Setchell at uh, 
Uh, he's at uh, University of Cincinnati. He's probably done more papers on this than you can't even imagine. If Mark Messina, who's done many of the uh, studies on soy. And the data don't hold up for cancer worries. In other words, the later studies have shown that you can, even if you have breast cancer, uh, take soy or eat soy and it has not held up. It's a myth. And there are papers that strongly support this in spite of vehement objections of some oncologists and other people. There are absolute data to support it. I can't quote you the paper off the top of my head, but I had those papers and I've written about them in my magazine, in my books. And um, there's, it's just not true. Now, if you have a cancer already, then soy or estrogen or any of these kinds of estrogen type of hormones may stimulate growth, but they don't increase death. For instance, in the Women's Health Initiative with estrogen, the overall benefit of hormones, for instance, is like even if there's a minimal increased risk of breast cancer, as I mentioned, the people don't die any sooner with hormones than without. The, quality, the, the duration of life isn't affected at all, and it's the same with soy. It just, the soy is just, I have a whole book on soy called The Soy Solution for Menopause. It's like, it does, the data don't support it. I understand it's out there, but it's not accurate, particularly if you stick with the genistein. That's really good to know. So, Let's talk about the plan. What do you recommend as a plan for someone who's going through perimenopause or menopause? How can she take charge of her health, of her hormones, and really thrive through this time period? Well, first of all, you have to be proactive. You have to go in, try to have a list of questions, and see what you see. What is your ideal self? What is it that's bothering you? What are your risk factors? What are the things you're most at, most at risk for? Did your mother have breast cancer? Did your mother have osteoporosis? Did your mother and your, or your grandmother have dementia? What is your family history? Does there a family history of cancer you need to know about? I mean, you have to really understand who you are and you want to understand where you want to get to. The second thing is to get someone who you're comfortable with and who will listen to you because you want to be able to have a, a partnership here. You want to be helped and not herded into what seems to work for everybody the same fit. You wouldn't go into a shoe store and get one shoe for every woman that walks in. It isn't going to work for menopause either. So you've got to have a situation where you have someone that's working with you and that's knowledgeable. The third thing is you have to decide what are your uh, absolute priorities. You're going to consider hormones if they're reasonable for you or you're not. You want strictly alternatives or not? Because there is another category of medicines I didn't get to that are treatments that are uh, prescription medicines that are non-estrogens that are available for many of the symptoms of menopause, mm. like hot flashes, uh, vaginal dryness. And, and what are those? Well, for hot flashes, there is a medication. It's actually uh, the same medicine that goes into one of the, it's uh, like Paxil. It's one of the, it's paroxetine, uh, but it's a very low dose. And the brand name for that is uh, Brisdale. 
and that is one that can be used as a non-estrogen choice for hot flashes. There is uh, um, Asfina, which is a pill that can be used for vaginal dryness that can be used, but you can also use estrogen locally, even if you have breast cancer currently, and even if you are going through treatment. And that is an opinion piece published uh, last year by the uh, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. But there is a new medication that's come out in just the last month or so hmm. that's actually a form of DHEA. It's Prasterone, P-R-A-S-T-E-R-O-N-E, which is very interesting medicine for vaginal dryness because you put it into the vagina and it's not estrogen, it's not testosterone, but it breaks down in the cells of your vagina into testosterone and into estrogen and then is completely metabolized further and never gets in your bloodstream. So it doesn't have to have any of the black box warnings that say a black box warning is those little things, you know, caution may cause breast cancer, may cause this, may cause that. That's not required for the Presterone. Um, Intra Rosa is the brand name. So, um, so there's these new medications and increasingly new things are coming out. So there are many options and you have to kind of understand what are your symptoms and what are you doing to prevent these silent conditions we mm -hmm. talked about, like the osteoporosis, dementia, uh, heart disease, etc. You mentioned that there are four approaches in your book that can help minimize the risk of hormones. I want to make sure we get that information in our podcast as well. For, for women who are still listening to the podcast and still worried about hormones, what are some of the things that you recommend they can do to minimize those risks? Well, first of all, the, the skin approach seems to be the absolute safest. At least that's what the data seems to show. So transdermal. Second, make sure that you start at the lowest dose. And you can always – I always start people at the lowest dose because about half of the people, maybe more, will be very satisfied with the lowest dose. And then you can always add more. But if you give more, you're just exposing the person to more, and they may have worked with less. So why start with more than the least? And then you just have people coming back every one to three months in the beginning until they get to the right maintenance dose. Now, then the third thing is to have – ongoing and regular checkups initially and then ongoingly while you're on these hormones just to be sure and by that I mean that initially maybe every one to three months and then every six months and then every year and then finally uh, you have to have at least annual exams and come back in because in every five years I find that two things happen one you change meaning you might have some new conditions or something that makes it different, or the data may change. There may be something better for you, or there may be some new information that you should be aware of with what you're taking. So these are some of the things that are very helpful for ongoing treatment. This has been so insightful. Thank you for writing your book, for really taking up our cause, the, the cause of women thriving through menopause, through bloom. As we wrap up, are you going to sing a little song for us? Well, uh, I can. Let's see. 
Because you know, I've I've heard your songs, and you've got quite a beautiful voice. And You're since you enjoy writing and singing songs about menopause, we've, we've got to hear you sing. Here's one just about growing old gracefully. Back in the days for liposuction, tummy tuck and facial reconstruction. We all learned to live with what we got. For Botox and facial peel, the white shade of her teeth was real. We learned to live with what we got. You could tell a book by its cover. You could tell your sister from your mother. Biggest gold life did not used to be. Looking 30 at age 53. We learn to grow old gracefully. Woo! That was awesome. That was so fun. You got a whole different career, Dr. Mays. You're wasting your time doing all this menopause stuff. You should get out there in the music business. Well, it's fun to sing because it breaks down barriers and people can then be, uh, you know, if you can sing about it, you can talk about it. You can laugh about it. God knows we need some laughter when we're going through perimenopause and menopause. It just gets harder and harder to laugh at yourself when you look in the mirror. But this has been so much fun. Thank you for taking the time out today. Any last parting advice for what is it, like 40 million women going through menopause at this point? And gosh, God knows how many more millions going through perimenopause. There's a lot of us out there suffering. Give us give us your parting wisdom. What is the one thing you want a woman listening to this podcast to get out there and do to get better or to feel well, better? I think the most important thing to realize is it's never too late to start. I mean, wherever you are is a great place to begin. You just have to get started and invest the time to really know what to do next, to become a partner in your health care, because the time spent on you isn't lost. It's invested. And the return on your investment is going to be better health, better happiness, and better hormonal balance. Beautifully said. Thank you again. And for the rest of the women listening to this podcast, do me a favor, share this with the women in your life. They will thank you for it. Let's all thrive together through our years of blossom and bloom. And let's make these the best darn years of our lives because we have so much to give. We have so much to create. We have such beauty to contribute to the world. Let's not let some brain fog and irritability and a little weight around the tummy get us down or stop us from being the amazing magical creatures we really are meant to be. So thank you for listening. We're going to be putting a lot of great links in the show notes, including Dr. Mesh's new book, The Estrogen Fix, as well as his webinar. And hey, we'll even put a link to his awesome song. Until the next podcast, stay smiling. Stay happy, and I'll see you very soon. 
That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.